Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1968. And look, you work your side of the street, and I'll work mine. The movie? Bullet. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. Hey, everybody, welcome to the show. I am Paul Shear, joined, as always, by Amy Nicholson. This is the show where we look at films. Are they classics, or do we just remember them that way? And to me, this film that we're about to do is one of the films that I've always been told is a stone-cold classic for only one reason— and this has been my first time watching it. We are about to embark on one of the core missions of the show, a film that I'm almost genuinely surprised was not on our original AFI list because it inspired films that were, like The French Connection, which we took off. Maybe Bullet will fare better. Well, Bullet, to me, I agree, is a movie that never really resonated with me, but I knew I was supposed to like it. I watched it once as a kid, as I've watched many of the movies that we've talked about here on the show, and it didn't resonate with me, but it was different watching it now. I don't know if it's after our conversation about Tom Cruise, or even after our conversation about leading men. You know, I I thought back a lot to what we talked about when we talked about There Will Be Blood. Like, there is something iconic about this performance. Take the movie away from it, and there's something that you can't take your eyes off of in this film. But is the film great? But then at the same time, like, what even is this character or am I just enjoying the the charisma of a genuine movie star? Is Steve McQueen just that charismatic that I don't even care what I'm watching? I'm just happy to be spending two hours with him. I mean, I will say everything that I thought Bullet was, which was just a very high octane cop movie. Oh, go over here. Oh, do this. Oh, sign this. I'm Bullet. I'm a tough guy. Punctuated by the most classic, gigantic, ginormous, 
standard-setting car chase of all time, a car chase so cool that when they finally found the car recently, they sold it for over $3 million. Everything that I thought Bullet was turned out to be honestly somewhat wrong in such a pleasing way. I wound up digging the hell out of this movie and thinking it was cooler than cool. Yeah, this movie is more cinema verite than I ever realized. I mean, this is a movie that is really setting the tone for a procedural cop film. And not only procedural, but realistic. You know, this is a very plain movie. Guns are not firing. You know, quips are not being made. This is, if anything, an interesting case, but nothing that's going to blow up the entire city. Yes, there is one amazing explosion that almost wrecked the entire movie, but we'll get into that in a little bit. This is a movie that really is trying to capture what it would really be like in these situations. People get hurt and we actually pay attention to it. And that's why the city of San Francisco in this movie plays such a big role because they don't use sets. They're in the hospital. They're in the police precinct. They're in the jazz club. They are in all these locations. By the way, Amy, we don't talk about it in the episode, but do you know that the jazz band that plays in Bullet was a band that Steve McQueen saw outside of San Fran and decided they got to be in the movie. (laughs) I mean, this is a very personal thing for Steve McQueen. He cast every single person in this movie. This is such like a transitional old Hollywood, new Hollywood, star-driven kind of template of what Hollywood is going to become. And honestly, I feel like if people had taken the right lessons from Bullet, Hollywood would be so cool today, man. But what I think they took was elements, but they didn't understand why those elements worked. And we will get into all that. So, Amy, buckle up. It's time to unspool it. The year is 1968, and Steve McQueen is about to become the highest paid movie star in the world. And he seems to suspect it. Because just 10 years ago, he was willing to do schlocky B-movie gigs like the lead in The Blob, where he played a teen named, well, Steve. Eh, not so cool. But then his cooler-than-cool machismo and hits like The Magnificent Seven, The Great Escape, The Thomas Crown Affair, have given him a fitting nickname, The King of Cool. Not bad for a broke motorcycle racer who once ran away to join the circus, became a thief, worked for a brothel, worked for a traveling carnival, got thrown in juvie, joined the merchant marines, worked as a lumberjack, all before the age of 18. Before 18, he did all of that. That is all real. Because McQueen himself is realer than real. And now Steve McQueen has a seven-picture deal with Warner Brothers, which sounds pretty cool. So he tells them he wants to make his next movie special. Instead of shooting it on the lot like everything else, where it's going to look like everything else, he wants to make something authentic. He wants to shoot his next movie on location in San Francisco. And Warner Brothers says no. And Steve McQueen says, fine, I've been meaning to produce my own movies anyway. So I'll pay to shoot it in San Francisco. I'll let you distribute it. But in return... Our seven-picture contract is canceled. I'd rather be free than tied down to some studio that's too cheap to make something cool. And so he hires a British director named Peter Yates 
and they make Bullet. It's a story of a San Francisco cop named Frank Bullet who gets a weekend assignment to babysit a mobster named Johnny Ross before Johnny Ross testifies at a congressional hearing that's supposed to make a superstar out of a senator named Walter Chalmers. The plot is complicated, which is probably why most people are like, I love Bullet because it has the best car chase of all time. And it does. Uh, Bullet is released on October 17th, 1968, and it's a massive hit that makes back 10 times its budget. And it also gets an Oscar win, an Oscar nomination for the things that action films like this get Oscar attention for, which is best editing, best sound. But I'm excited to make the case that Bullet is a great movie by all measures, beyond the car chase, because of things like Steve McQueen's really authentic portrait of a cop aware that he's starting to get a little bit too numbed by violence, which is kind of like the number one song in the zeitgeist that weekend of October 17th, an ode to being the kind of man willing to feel things, to let in emotional pain, and to stop feeling the pressure of being the king of cool. It's the Beatles and Hey Jude. I mean, Paul, King of Cool, what would you do if you had that nickname? That's a lot of pressure. If I had that nickname and I've only had uh, the nickname Prince of Cool, so I wouldn't know (laughs) how much higher it would be, I guess I would say less. And I think Steve McQueen does that in this movie because he retains being cool by never really letting you know exactly what he's thinking. Yeah, I think he took Say Less almost to the extreme in this movie. Like Steve McQueen really had this philosophy that movies are made to move. They're made to be seen. You know, they're all about showing action on the screen. They're not about necessarily filling in logic with lots of words, which is why this script, I think, cuts out a lot of explanations, a lot of things, which made people like like Robert Vaughn, who plays Senator Chalmers in here, when he got sent his script for Bullet, he legitimately thought that they had forgotten to send the whole script because he was like, they must have lost pages in this in the photocopier because I have no idea what's happening in here. And I have no <laughs> idea how to even feel about my character, about the senator. Is he, how is he, he's not a good guy, but how bad is he? Is he the main villain? Is he a villain villain? Is he just selfish? Who knows? Well, you know, Quentin Tarantino's book, Cinema Speculation, has a whole chapter on Bullet. And I read that before I actually saw Bullet. And... According to Steve McQueen's wife, he would just go through the script and just cross out lines, just got this script to its barest bones. And I think the challenge was, can I convey more by being than by saying? And I think there's something about it that works, but... (laughs) Like the plot is a little hard to kind of figure out. Like, okay, I'm seeing this stuff. I'm feeling like I'm getting a lot of information, but I'm constantly playing catch up. So much so that I read the Wikipedia after the movie to be like, did I miss anything? Like, wait, hold on. Okay, yeah, I guess. Okay, sure. But 
to what end? I don't know. Like the movie ends in a way that left me slightly confused. Now it's funny because I read Roger Ebert's review and he thought that it was a beautifully written thriller that had a very clear and concise plot. But I don't know if I agree with that. Well, it's weird because I kind of feel like I do, but then I also feel like I don't understand it. You know, like this film is, I would say, a really interesting take on a procedure because we're really watching the procedure. I mean, to think about what you miss when you cut out most of the dialogue is you miss the way that I think a lot of thrillers operate, which is they cut from one scene of, I know what's happening, to another scene of, hey, what about this? And, you know, they're always cutting between, like, revelations and questions and people talking. And, like, the things that we, quote, unquote, think are exciting about a kind of cop movie where the cops are figuring out the mystery of what's happening. This movie doesn't cut between the cops having conversations about how they're figuring it out. It cuts to the parts that, like, I think a lot of thrillers leave out. You see, say, like, the aftermath of an exciting shooting, you know, early on, we have like a scene where like assassins show up at a hotel room, they're blasting gunfire, they hit one police officer, they hit the guy that that Steve McQueen's character is supposed to be protecting. And instead of cutting straight afterwards to like, what are we going to do? They got shot, blah, blah, blah. The movie spends so much time in the aftermath of violence. I mean, we see things like the ambulance drivers muttering about what they did wrong. The door's not open. Somebody screwed up. They screwed up the doors. Somebody put the bed in. We follow the ambulance to the hospital where we spend a really long time watching the ambulance park itself. We go into the hospital itself. We see, I don't know, minutes and minutes and minutes of the doctors talking about what to do to save the patient who's on the operating table in front of them. What's his blood pressure now? Says there's down to 90 or 70. Started the blood going. Switcher. Kelly. Scissors. Better let me tie this one. Okay. Match some bomb, please. Accepted. Pick up. Nice. dropping. Pulse is also going up now. I mean, in a way, this movie is filled with talking. I have so many clips of like random people talking in this movie that I'm like kind of excited to play. It's just not filled with Steve McQueen talking about what's happening. Instead, it's all about, I think, the weight of what real life violence does. It feels real. It doesn't feel cut between exciting moments. Well, I think that's all because of Steve McQueen. And maybe if he didn't produce this movie, if he didn't have control to cut his lines, we wouldn't have gotten this version of a film because Steve McQueen is very savvy. He's seeing the way that Hollywood is going. And he's like, you know what? We need to kind of get around the audience's expectations of what a cop movie is. Let's do this differently. Let's get this in real locations, so much so that that hospital scene you just played, those are real doctors and nurses in those scenes. Even in the architectural firm, those are real architects that were teaching actors how to be in their actual office. He had this like real passion to create something that was truly real and had weight to it. Yeah, it's fascinating because like learning about the history of how Bullock got made, I was thinking to myself, whoa, this sounds a lot like what we just talked about with Tom Cruise making Mission Impossible, 
a movie star being like, I'm going to take control of my own career. I'm going to produce my next film. I'm going to go into this genre on my own terms and do what interests me. I'm going to hire the director. You know, I'm going to do this the way that I feel like it should be done. And even in the way where like Tom Cruise is like, well, I'm going to do Mission Impossible and I'm going to do it fast and I'm going to do it under budget. Steve McQueen is doing the same thing. I'm paying for this. We're going to shoot it fast. We're going to get it made. And then being like, and I'm also, by the way, going to do as many of my own stunts as I possibly can. This idea of like, I'm going to put my reputation and my body on the line to make the kind of action film I believe in. And I think this movie also is wrestling with the fact that McQueen doesn't want to idolize a cop like he's in a period of time where he knows his fan base doesn't think being a cop is cool right he doesn't want to play a cop how does he create a cool cop and i think you see elements of that in this movie you know he's not incredibly bombastic he doesn't really use his weapon that much he seems to be affected by violence while living in violence. It's a part of his story, but he also goes and sees jazz. Like there is something about this cop that's a little bit different, a little bit cooler than the traditional cops that we've been seeing in these types of films. Yeah, for real. I mean, like Steve McQueen is this guy who really openly was like smoking weed, dropping acid, going to the desert to take peyote. And yeah, super aware of like who his audience base was. And this is, I'll admit, Paul, this is like a little weird for me because, you know, Steve McQueen and his movies are from a generation before us. Right. And so I always see Steve McQueen as kind of looking like a like a mature grown-up. And I've never quite gotten completely that he was like a cool guy. I keep hearing that he's a cool guy and he is cool in a way, but I never quite get like the the youth energy that I think people 100%. at the time would have I agree seen with in you. him. Yeah. yeah, because in a way he's kind of like, launching a way of looking and a way of talking that then became the norm. So it's like like the fact that like in this movie, he's going around wearing turtlenecks and tweed blazers and stuff. I noticed that he's not dressed like anybody else, but I don't think I get the shock of how unusual he looks. I don't get the shock that that's like a bizarre st style choice the way that you probably did in like the 1968 where you're like, whoa, this guy's like a fashion icon. It's hard for me to see the freshness of him, right? You too? Absolutely. I think that, Bullet sets the tone for what I think cop movies become in many ways, right? There are so many pieces of DNA in this movie that you can see in a modern-day action film, a modern-day cop film, just even an hour-long procedural. Yeah. I mean, how many times in this movie were you like, oh, Heat stole this and Heat stole that? Oh, my Heat God. Stole that. Yes. Heat yes. stole like half of this movie. Oh, absolutely. It's hard for me to see this character as revolutionary as he was. You know, that Steve McQueen is a guy who's really like telling his manager, the kids call cops pigs. Those kids are going to turn on me so fast it'll make your head spin. You know, when he first said that he didn't want to do this movie at all. You know, he's a guy who like when the cops were fighting hippies, like stood up for the hippies. He said, you know, cops should not make trouble for hippies. Hippies have contributed so much that is groovy. And so... That idea of layering a pro-hippie guy onto a guy who also looks to me, you know, in the generation that I grew up with as a guy with, you know, a pretty normal haircut, pretty normal vest. He's not wearing like a fringe shirt. Like, I do have to do an extra step of work to remember that this character is like a, a hippie guy. But then I guess part of that is also like Steve McQueen himself is kind of wrestling with how hippie he is around this moment. You know, there's like 
right around here is when like Steve McQueen was hanging out a lot with like his best buddy, Jay Sebring, being really good friends with Sharon Tate. And part of the story of Steve McQueen at this moment in the late 60s was he was supposed to be hanging out with Jay Sebring and Sharon Tate the night that the Manson family showed up and murdered everybody. But he had randomly like met a cute girl and was spending the night with this cute girl instead and stood up his friends. And so then his friends get murdered. And when they finally arrest Manson, they find a letter in Manson's house that's like detailing all of the other celebrities he wanted to kill and how he intended to kill them. Like they had this whole plan in the Mansons where one of the Manson girls was going to seduce Frank Sinatra just so she could castrate him. They were going to boil Elizabeth Taylor alive and they were going to kill Steve McQueen. Like by name, they singled him out and they said that what they were going to do is kill Steve McQueen in a way that it looked like a fake suicide. And so in this moment, he's kind of pivoting really rapidly from like sticking up for hippies to oh, hippies are trying to kill me? And it's a little bit disorienting, I think, for him too. I mean, that's fascinating. I didn't realize that he was so like public enemy number one to the Manson family because it does feel like he is not traditional Hollywood. Everything about him is a little bit off-center. But I guess, you know, we're trying to find logic in, in a very uh, crazed, demented mind. So I guess I shouldn't be too surprised. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Well, I mean, do you have the same problem with Steve McQueen that I do too? And this is not a problem with Steve McQueen. It's just a problem with the the history of Steve McQueen and like really registering it, which is to me, Steve McQueen didn't feel like a guy who had been the biggest movie star in the world because he, you know, he died really young. He died at the age of 50. And he's one of those guys who turned down so many major movie star parts like I mean, I'll just list a bunch. He turned down Breakfast at Tiffany's, Ocean's Eleven, Butch Cassidy, Apocalypse Now, Dirty Harry, French Connection, Sorcerer, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the original The Driver. Like, he turned on all the movies that I would have seen him in. So in a way, I never thought he was as big of a movie star as he really was because he wasn't in the stuff that I ever saw. And so when people talk about Steve McQueen as being the biggest movie star of the 70s, I'm like, really? Because it's like it his his the films he made, most of them didn't resonate with me when I was growing up. So I feel like I'm always having to struggle to remind myself that Steve McQueen was so famous that he would have been on a list right next to Elizabeth Taylor and Frank Sinatra for the Mansons. 
Yeah, I mean, Steve McQueen is not my guy. He's never been my guy. But yet, after watching this movie, I'm like, I get it a little bit more. And in the past, I went and watched Bullet, and it didn't really register with me. I really appreciate it now. I actually think it's really great. And I love The Great Escape. I think that I have an easier time seeing people like Paul Newman and understanding how he was a giant movie star. When you say Elizabeth Taylor, I get that as well. Like he seems to me like the person our parents knew was cool. And I don't know if many actors have that cool thing. Like that's a great actor. Those are great musicians, but he definitely has that thing that kind of is a little different. Like he's got a bigger persona than most people I think of this time. Yeah, it's almost like he was such a big star that he turned down so many things that he stopped being a star in a way that lasted past his lifetime, if that makes any sense. Right. It's like if right at the peak of Top Gun, Tom Cruise was like, and I'm good or something, you know, or I I mean, part of the story here is like Bullet made him such a huge star that like then he invested so much time, so much money into making um, Le Mans, like a, the most realistic race car movie he thought he could possibly ever do, where like actual drivers got really injured making the movie. And it's a really intense movie. Quentin Tarantino's New Beverly showed it here once. And I was like, I'm definitely going to go see that. But it was one of those projects that almost took him out of commission for so long. You know, actually, it's not like if Tom Cruise quit after Top Gun. It's like if Tom Cruise quit after Mission Impossible, which is like, remember when Tom Cruise then did Mission Impossible? He did Jerry Maguire. He got his Oscar nominations. And then he peaced out and went to London and worked with uh, Stanley Kubrick for like two and a half years doing Eyes Wide Shut. It's like if he had done that and then his career never recovered and then people forgot how big he was. And then, you know, the next generation was like, who's Tom Cruise? You know, but I want to like just dig into this a little bit more because it wasn't like Steve McQueen turned down these parts. Steve McQueen seemed to get in his own way. He turns down Breakfast at Tiffany's because he has to do Wanted Dead or Alive, right? He turned down Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid because his agents and attorneys couldn't agree with Paul Newman's attorneys and agents on who got top billing. You know, he turned down... Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind because he's like, I can't cry on cue. Right. And he turns down stuff like French Connection and Sorcerer because they're so car-based. He's like, what do you want me? I'm just doing the same thing again? Well, he didn't want to do another cop movie for French Connection. So, And I get that. So there's something about it. Or Dirty Harry, yeah. Where he is wanting to work, but he's also very specific about how he wants to work. It's not like he isn't engaging. He just has a very specific way of working. And when we go back to this movie, Bullet, a movie that, you know, I guess he wants to shoot in San Francisco, but I guess it also times in where the mayor says, please come to San Francisco. So they could shoot everything in San Francisco. They don't have to build a single set. They're in hospitals. They are in Every amazing location in San Francisco, they get access to. They're shutting down streets. They're doing everything. We'll get into the car chase in a little bit. But I think this idea that Steve McQueen wanted all this control, wanted every little bit of things to feel real and different. And I can imagine him 
having a hard time just giving over to somebody else and making up excuses, finding reasons to not work because maybe he doesn't trust himself enough to to do it that way or be seen in the way that he wants to be seen. Honestly, that's a really relatable mindset where you're so afraid of losing everything that you've earned that you can't invest in what's next for you because it's scary. But then he's also willing to do really scary things. I mean, there's like the scene here in in Bullet where he's running around an airplane tarmac and an airplane rolls right over him and that he insists on doing that stunt himself. Like one of the stories is like there, a reporter that was there on set and the reporter was like, you couldn't find a dummy to do that. And Steve's like, well, they did, you know, implying that he's just an idiot because he wants to do these things. Well, to go back to your Tom Cruise analogy, He's somebody who knows that when you see that, even now seeing that, it's an impressive sequence. Him lying down while an airplane runs over him. I mean, the car chase scene has this energy to it. And we've seen bigger car chase scenes. We've seen more extreme car chase scenes. But there's something about the realness of that. It it feels more dangerous to me. Both of those stunts, and this is now, you know, 40 years later, you know, these scenes still have an intensity to them. And I think he's 100% right. He knew how to to bring this stuff to the forefront. It makes me bummed that he wouldn't do Sorcerer because I think Sorcerer, which has had a lot of love in the last six months, especially here in Los Angeles, I feel like, um, would have been great. I feel like he likes that kind of real tension. You talked about it in Le Mans too. Like he really, really wants to keep an audience invested in the action of a film. Yeah, he does. But yeah, like everything we're talking about now, I'm sort of thinking it's almost reflected in Bullet itself because the character of Bullet that he's playing, which is a character that he really, really, really changed around from like the original source novel. You know, this movie is based on a, a book called like Mute Witness. And that book was first optioned like a bazillion years before this movie for Spencer Tracy. So we're talking like old style movie star. And I mean, and that and that cop in it, first of all, is from Boston, but also it's like a, a Boston cop who eats a lot of ice cream and never solves a case. You know, very like weird, like it, when you look at what that is versus what this is, it, it's miles apart. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't even feel like they should even say it's based on the same story. You're talking about a guy who's like, his name was like Clancy. And they're like, what if we change Clancy to Bullet? But yeah, I almost wonder like if in adapting this to fit him, maybe within Bullet itself, we're seeing Steve McQueen talk about how he sees his own career because kind of the driving push of his character, one of them, is that this Senator Chalmers keeps telling Bullet, hey, do what I say, stick with me, take my advice, obey these rules, and I'm going to give you the biggest career you can ever imagine. You know, the first time he meets with Chalmers, you know, they're talking about it like this. 226 Embarcadero Road, room 634. He's there now, expecting you. So now that you know where my house is, Lieutenant, I hope that we'll get to see a lot more of each other, particularly in view of the investigation. A senatorial hearing has a way of catapulting everyone involved into the public eye with subsequent effect on one's career. It'd be a pleasure to have you along. And instead, what we see Steve McQueen's bullet do throughout the movie is just like, I don't care about this career you have in mind for me. I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it my way, even if it's a hit on like the, the status that you seem to think I care about. 
I mean, he has that great showdown with Chalmers, like right at the end of it, where he's just flat out, I don't like you. And I want to play this scene in full because it also has something I think very particular for Steve McQueen. Look, Chalmers, let's understand each other. I don't like you. Come on now, don't be naive, Lieutenant. We both know how careers are made. Integrity is something you sell the public. You sell whatever you want, but don't sell it here tonight. Frank, we must all compromise. Bullshit. Get the hell out of here now. Where Steve McQueen says bullshit right there, Mm -hmm. that is the very first time that Steve McQueen ever swore in a movie. Because Steve McQueen had this kind of rule. He was like, I don't think we should have to swear in a movie to make it cool. He's like, if I have to swear or if I have to get naked, those things are unnecessary. Like, they're almost crutches. And he's like, I'm going to make a movie where you don't have to swear and you don't have to get naked in order to make things amazing. Steve McQueen is someone who was, you know, beaten as a child and starts to have this issue with authority. You know, he also is somebody who you know, became a role model and was elected to the boys council, right? Looking out for young boys and, and, and kind of helping, giving them a, a guiding influence. He's also somebody who was in the military. In addition to what you said he had went through and all the kind of insane jobs he had before he was 18, but he was in the military from 47 to 1950 as a Marine, right? So there's this idea of this person. But even in the Marines, he's demoted seven times because he cannot obey authority. And that's what I was kind of getting at, this idea that he's somebody who is questioning authority. He can't stay in the Marines. He at his position. And this movie is about a cop who doesn't want to be under anyone's thumb because basically what... Chalmers is doing is saying, stick with me. And if this goes great, your career goes great. And at the end of that scene, Bullet is unimpressed. Bullet doesn't care about his career, but it doesn't seem like he really cares about anything more than kind of living his life. He doesn't even seem like a cop obsessed. He just seems like a cop who's doing his job. And that's the interesting thing about a movie like this. If you go and you look at Heat or you look at Cobra, you look at these, you know, movies of these cops or whatever we see, like oftentimes we we see these cops so driven by what they have to do that they they reject everything else in their life. But here, Bullet seems to enjoy his life. He wants to sleep in. He... <laughs> doesn't want to go to a morning meeting. You know, he is smart, but also knows how to balance it out. Like there's that scene, you know, with his girlfriend, after his girlfriend sees the, you know, the, the woman dead in the hotel room, he takes this moment with Jacqueline Bissett on the side of the road to talk to her about how she's feeling and how they are together. I thought I knew you, but I'm not so sure anymore. Do you let anything reach you? I mean, really reach you. Or are you so used to it by now that nothing really touches you? You're living in a sewer, Frank. Day after day. That's where half of it is. You can't walk away from it. I know it's there, but I don't have to be reminded of the whole thing. The ugliness around us. With you, living with violence is a way of life. Living with violence and death. Humanity. He doesn't say to her, 
this is my job, this is who I am, you got to accept me or get the fuck out. He does say, like, this is where I live and this is what I do. And I think that's why the ending of the movie is actually really beautiful, because she stays with him. And that, to me, seems more important than the mystery of the movie or the crime of the movie. It really is about Bullet as a person. And I think that that's something that seems really intentional. He's not somebody who is just a profession. He is a human being. I completely, completely agree. And that's why I love that this movie picks up on the tiny moments of a cop's narrative that I think gets skipped over. You know, like when he's at the hospital waiting to see if his friend is going to be like fixed and the friend himself is not even made into like a major character. You know, the friend is not like he was my closest buddy on the force. It's just a guy that he knew from the force that he feels a little bit responsible of and just the facts of it speak for themselves or he doesn't have to have had like a huge old emotional scene about, but he just had a baby or anything like that. Nothing about it is phony. But in that whole sequence, kind of my favorite moment is that he's there, he's up all night, he's keeping an eye on things. And one of the nurses thinks to bring him a tray of hospital food, assuming that he hasn't eaten. And yeah, he hasn't eaten and he eats a sandwich. And watching that, I thought, that's the scene I always want to see in movies that I never see, which is when somebody's on the run or something's really hectic, they still need to eat. They still need to stop and use the restroom. You know, they need these like physical things and they always get glossed over because people are cutting from like one high point to another high point. But I think in cutting between exciting action sequences, you really skip over almost not even just the humanity of the situation. But you skip over the hardship that these people are going through to make all of this happen. You know, if you just pretend that nobody has to eat, that we don't feel the fact that, like, they actually are hungry, they're exhausted, they're tired, they're not getting any sleep. And that's what I think raises the stakes and makes you feel how hard this is. But on that same level, you're right. This is just a weekend. It's a weekend gig, and he's going to be on to the next gig right after this. By making it smaller, you almost admire the relentlessness of his job even more. Right, because... You see that his job is not incredibly showy, and it's very small detective work, right? It's not, you know, running all around the city like he's just making observations. And I think that that maybe is the thing that Roger Ebert and you are both responding to in the sense that it's a contained plot. It is a contained plot. I mean, it's kind of funny, right? Like part of me was thinking, watching this thing about like mistaken identities and nobody knowing what's happening. And even us at the audience, that like not really getting it because we have that whole sequence at the beginning where they're showing us Chicago and like this original crime caper that Ross is involved in and his families. And you see these people on the screen kind of like, well, here, as this cool music is playing... As we're hearing all of that cool stuff and like the fonts being all playful and popping all over and the screen kind of looking like almost pop art, like modern art, we have no idea what's happening. You know, who these people are, what they're doing, who's on what side, what's going on. And it kind of plays a, a trick on you where like we see these characters and we know we're supposed to keep them straight, but we can't keep them straight. And we're incredibly disoriented and they can swap out faces and we're not even going to notice. And there's kind of this running joke in the film, I think, where all of the men in this movie who are not Steve McQueen are really interchangeable and you can't tell them apart from each other. And they all sort of look alike down to the part where like 
He finally sees the guy on an airplane, chases him through the darkness. And then when he gets back inside the airport and he's still looking for the guy now that he's like blending into the crowd, he can't even see who the killer is because all of these guys look alike. It's just a bazillion men with strong jaws and dark hair and the same jacket. And it made me think of American Psycho and people being like, I don't know, he's in London. He's we He wound up in London. We don't know where he is. I just saw that guy. Everybody looks the same. You know, the only thing that gives the killer away in the airport is that he's like sweatier than the rest of them and he looks a little bit nervous. But it's Steve McQueen who's an individual. Everybody else is homogenous in a way that I think the film is kind of playing with. Well, I think that probably even plays more when you see this movie when it's first released because he really does look different than everybody else. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. What I find really interesting about the movie is that violence is treated, I think, very respectfully in this film. When Steve McQueen does kill the guy at the end of the film in the airport, we see him not drop his gun, right? He's still holding his gun. Like, he's doing the right police move. He clears the gun away. He he seems neither cavalier about it nor does he seem overly upset, but we know that like there's a respect for the fact that he just took someone's life, right? There's an energy there that I don't really see in other films. And going back to your earlier point, yeah, there's also that energy there when his partner is shot and those people are killed in that room. Anytime you see violence in this movie, people aren't like, oh my God, it's so violent, but they are respectful of the violence like they're in these spaces it's quieter in those spaces um and i think you have that moment like i mentioned earlier with jacqueline Bissett when she sees the violence that he's used to she's her mind is blown like oh my god this is what you do and that to me is something that i really was looking at in this film this idea that his individuality is allowing him to separate himself from the traditional cops of TV and film that he was afraid to be associated with because he actually respects everything. He respects this whole, what what that position of power is. Does that make sense too? It does. And I absolutely love how you're describing it because that really struck me too. Like that there is no such thing as like kind of a, a punchline cool death here. No sort of like, Hasta la vista, you know? He doesn't make jokes. 
and he's incredibly, I think, aware of the the cost of a human life. You know, even the guy that he shoots at the end that you're talking about, he takes off his coat. He puts his coat over that man. We see things that we never see in movies. We see a priest showing up to give last rites to the other security cop who was killed. And really one of my pit peeves in so many movies is that they're very wanton and cavalier with like the expense of life everywhere around them. You know, I'm thinking about like the Fast and Furious movies where you just see like other people's cars crashing left and right, people whose faces we never see, you know, as like our heroes speed forward, all of these pedestrians, everybody's running out of the way and it's incredibly dangerous. And like, but the movie I think never stops to care about it or the way that PG-13 movies just like mow down tons and tons and tons of like faceless bad guys, but because there's no blood, it's like perfectly fine or because they're aliens, it's perfectly fine. And here every death has like weight, you know? I mean, one of the things I've really just kind of stopped at because it startled me was, you know, we have these like bad guys that are kind of like the main villains for the first half of the film, you know, the, the mysterious guys in the car. They don't survive the chase scene. When that chase scene is over, the first thing we see is his boss chewing him out that two people have died and being so upset by that, even though they're the bad guys, being so upset by that and really making you think that every single life in this movie should matter. What the hell is going on here? A high-speed pursuit, two men are killed, an officer in the hospital, a witness almost murdered. Now, I want to know what's happening and I want to know now. Let's hear it straight. Here's a report. Now, a man like Chalmers could be a great help to the department. He could speak for us where it counts. He could fight for us in the legislature. Now, you have got to turn over his witness. Where's Ross? Tell him. That's an order. And there's just something in that, that the stakes feel so real, that it makes everything feel real. This movie just feels so real in the way that it plays out. And maybe that's dangerous because maybe cops aren't as cool as like Steve McQueen's cop is. Maybe cops aren't as moral necessarily as Steve McQueen's cop is. But he plays him with such respect for what he's doing. You know, we talked about American Psycho last week. We talked about one of the underlying themes of that movie is class, right? And I feel like this movie shares a similar thing. We are looking at this man who's running for a political position. And when we first meet him, we go to his house. He is wooing all these older, rich women. And immediately we see that Bullet is out of place here. People don't pay him any mind. He's in the way of people. Yeah, this is like so emphasized because it's not even just like he walks into this guy's room and you see a ton of rich looking women. We spend like a minute in here doing nothing really, but basically overhearing women we don't know muttering and talking. Like we are put into this world so that we can see how much that he does not fit in. Conditions in our local politics here. It was purely unintentional, I assure you. It wasn't that I was so well informed, it was just that I was so ill informed. Would you excuse me for do you like it well in Arinda we have all this beautiful dry sunshine it's absolutely perfect for roses I do all my own work you should see my hands from pruning hello Steve McQueen in that scene knows he's out of place but he doesn't try to fit in and he doesn't also 
fight it. Like he doesn't try to show up this Chalmers guy, like I'm cooler, I'm better than you. He just kind of accepts his place. And we see this as this like seething underbelly throughout the movie. Like it's constantly being put over him. I will destroy you. I will see you at your public crucifixion. You know, he's being told to stop the case by this guy, but it's all about, I have more power than you. And Steve McQueen never outwardly says, go fuck yourself. And all the movies in the eighties, that becomes like the norm. Like if you had Stallone and a mayor, you know, for sure, like, and you could go back to your fucking city hall and let them do this to you. Right. Or you have like a, you know, the police chief who would be yelling like, get the hell out of my office bullet and don't come back here until you have an arrest. But everything in this movie is played in this real way where we understand the stakes, but we also understand like the power that people hold over us. And that's the way it is in real life. People don't just confront everybody. Like, Bullet's a cop. He's got to do his job. And he, I think that the strongest thing that Bullet does in this movie is he's so confident in himself. Yeah, that's exactly it. You're right. It's like taking away all of those standard scenes and filling them instead with kind of background noise that just makes these characters feel, to me, like more believable. You're right. We don't have the captain being like, Bullet, get in here, what's your ass on the line? Instead, we have like the captain answering the phone at his house, and we just hear his kids are having a big argument in the background. Dad, it's for you. you Listen, you're, you're not going. You're not going. Listen, we're going to go to a horror movie because I don't want to go to I don't want you to Hold it down. Hold it. Hold it down. Don't be too late. Why don't we just go to a movie? I don't want you to come. Hello. Hello. Captain? Frank? We'll see you later, Dad. So we get to know the captain as a family guy. We're not getting to only see the captain as like, it's me, stock captain, being real angry, throwing my weight around. And by the way, did you recognize that Captain Simon Oakland from a movie that we have seen? No. He only half existed to begin with. And now the other half has taken over. Probably for all time. Yeah, he is the psychiatrist at the end of Psycho who tells us everything oh, that is going on. wow. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I'll take it. I think in his attempt to not glorify being a cop, what he does create is this non-glamorous look at what it's like to be a public servant. You have to answer to somebody else. This is not cool. He is cool. He is smart, but it's not cool, right? Um, And I think that there's a big difference between what we see in movies now, like how, like you said, the one-liners, the way that you know, the guns drawn or the slow motions employed. Like this is just focus and drive. And I'll, and to bring it home, it all happens in the car chase, that car chase, which structurally is amazing. But when you watch the faces of the two people driving, we have that one guy, the the bad guy who looks like he could be an accountant who has maybe hearing jazz music for the first time. Like that's what his face looks like when he's driving. Like he yeah, doesn't me look, too. he's like, he doesn't look like Vin Diesel. No, <laughs> right? he doesn't look, he doesn't look like he's super stressed that he's just driving insanely through San Francisco. And you look at Steve McQueen and he also looks just like he's focused on driving. And I've, realize that we've seen so many movies where people are like, ugh, ugh, you know, pulling the wheel and, and turning and, and doing multiple things. And what I noticed in that car chase scene was these two people 
are driving in a high-speed chase. They are focused. Their eyes are on the road. They are truly, they very much similar to, I guess, like Keanu Reeves and John Wick when they did some of the car sequences there. But it is a different level of intent that isn't, it's not even overly cinematic. It's just, it feels real. Yeah, it's almost like if you are so good at doing something that we think is cool, you don't even have to advertise it. You don't have to even brag about it. You just do the thing. I mean, that driver, Bill Hickman, you know, the guy who's wearing the glasses and is driving the the bad guy's car, like he was just an actual amazing stunt car driver whose pedigree he doesn't need to brag about because it's just there. Like he was one of James Dean's best friends. Like when James Dean had his car accident, it yeah. was Bill Hickman, the driver in this car, who was in the car right behind James Dean because they were driving together. He's the guy who like pulled over, got James Dean out of the car, held James Dean as he died, this guy. And when that's you, you don't need to be like, oh, it's me, Vin Diesel, oh, I'm screaming and all that. You're just like, I do my job. I'm confident. And that's what's cool about him. And this car chase, I mean, probably one of the most famous car chases in movie history sets the tone for so many that will follow it, but yet probably have never really topped it. I mean, this is something where where Steve McQueen and Bill Hickman, you know, when they start working on this movie, they just go out to a racetrack together and just get comfortable driving in this proximity next to each other. Because there is that great sequence where the cars are truly uh, like window to window, you know, and they're not smashing into each other. They are just staying in this perfect line. You know, they're, they're trying to edge each other off the road. And so they really worked together to kind of create and build up to this epic scene that probably couldn't have been shot anywhere but San Francisco because the mayor, like I said, was so desperate to have productions shoot there that he shut down all these streets and you allowed to have this continuous chase. While it doesn't work out perfectly, they did shoot a lot of these pieces, you know, in long takes. They had extras out on the road. They have people, you know, uh, letting them know when they could go through, when they couldn't go through. They're going 80 miles an hour, you know. Uh, And even one of the cars that was like carrying a camera went over 110 miles an hour to capture all this. It took three weeks to do this, you know, to get, what is it, nine minutes and 42 seconds. Uh, the only place they couldn't shoot in all of San Francisco, Golden Gate Bridge, which is hilarious because that would have been, you feel like that's the one landmark we're not getting in that entire sequence. Right? But I feel like almost if you got it, then the whole thing would maybe even seem too phony. Like, oh, they wound up on Golden Gate Bridge. Of right. course they had to. But yeah, I mean, here's them even talking about how difficult it was to coordinate everything. We had Bill Hickman, who was probably one of the finest stunt drivers in the world today, and myself was probably the worst. Then we had both of our minds psyched in together. So then all we had to do was get the stuntmen, which we had eight, we thought were the best, and put them in cars to act as pedestrians so that when we were going by them at well over 100 miles an hour, we knew what they were going to do and they knew what we were going to do. And of course, uh, a car coming at that speed, if you lose it and spin it, the men are in great jeopardy. Then, of course, we planned out our route. We were involved in approximately 22 to 30 square blocks. So we had close to 50 people stationed with walkie-talkies in different 
parts of the city that we were shooting in that would be able to give us uh, clearances when to start and know that everything would be taken care of as far as people accidentally walking into the scene. And I want to say, you know, this is why I think it's really unfair that Bullet is remembered as, oh, that movie that's fine and then has that one great car chase. Because to me, it's everything that we've been talking about already in this episode. You know, the naturalism of it, the realism of it, the like, the, the attention paid to just the daily life of this cop. Like before this car chase, we've had like minutes and minutes and minutes and minutes of just watching Steve McQueen parallel park his car, check his pockets to see if he has a coin to buy a newspaper, doesn't have a coin. So he steals the newspaper, goes inside to like a little market, buys a bunch of TV dinners. We're spending so much natural time with this man that when he suddenly is behind the wheel of a car speeding through the streets, you have bought us, you have bought us in the audience, our faith that this is an intense deal. You know, because you could just have a car chase break out in any movie, but if everything's been like big and bombastic up until then, I think as an audience member, we kind of check out a little bit. Oh, absolutely. And, and, And I also think what he does is he builds up the tension. It's not just a car chase. You start to see like what you're talking about, this idea, like he's being followed. Like, what are we doing? Like that tension is big. And that actually is why he was hired because Steve McQueen knew from this other film that he did uh, called The Robbery, Peter Yates. Um, he did the same thing. He did a 15 minute car chase, but Steve McQueen said the five minutes leading up to that 15 minutes is high tension. And that's why I think the car chase is so effective because there are these moments where you're feeling like something bad is about to happen. It's not just the chase is bad. It's like it it starts off slow. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it ends with a complete explosion, which, by the way, uh, was a nightmare because, you know, that explosion actually went off at the wrong time. This whole sequence was really drilled down to this final moment where, you know, Bullet is able to toss his car off to the side of the road and this car, right? This with uh, this dummies kind of tripped a wire and it prematurely sent, like blew up the set. Like it tripped that wire and the editor of the movie, Frank Keller, basically had to figure out how to, you know, juxtapose certain images to make it look like the explosion went off on time, which is why if you slow down the footage, uh, you can see the Dodge Charger visible behind the flames, but they leave that in, you know, that all these things, I think, give it an an energy of it feeling uh, more real. Yeah, exactly. I mean, A, you can really see why this movie deserved to win the best editing Oscar. But B, you know, one fun fact about Yates that I feel, is, I feel like really solidified him as like the right person for this movie is he is probably the only director working in Hollywood then, maybe ever, who both graduated from London's Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and also was a racing manager for a Formula One driver. Like, what other director has that, like, wow. range? That's like James Cameron, I go undersees kind of ability to stretch who you are and what you know about the way that the world works. But yeah, like, with all of that said, I mean, to me, what makes this race thrilling just on the streets of San Francisco is I feel like this movie has bought your belief that Bullet does not want anybody to get hurt that he doesn't want any bystanders to like be victims here in a way where I think part of why you're holding your breath is how are these two guys going to get through these streets without hurting anybody? 
And and again, this is why I get so mad when other car chase movies just have other cars getting piled up on the side of the road and people ducking out of the way. This movie gets all of that tension by your fear of how are these guys going to take these turns and nobody get hurt. And you know, when somebody finally does like minutes, minutes, minutes into it, when one of the bikers like skids out as they're mm-hmm. chasing each other on the freeway. By the way, you know that biker where you've seen him before? Where? He did the jump in The Great Escape on the motorcycle. He also, and more interestingly, rode the motorcycle up the stairs in Animal House. <laughs> well, yeah, but like when that guy skids out, what we have is it's such a big deal that like the movie isn't just like, oh, look, that's so cool. Biker skids out. Let's keep speeding on. Steve McQueen's car pulls over yes. to make sure that the biker is okay. That never happens in any other movie. And you get this sense of genuine moral concern. Like, Lieutenant Bullet never has to say, I'm a good guy. And the movie never has to say he's a good guy. But we just see him caring about people. And then having oh, to catch absolutely. up. And it adds to the stakes of him having to, like, race all the way and find the drivers again. Even at the end, like, you know, both cars go careening off the side of the road. And Bullet kind of hits this little ditch. You look at his face and you feel like, oh, wow, like, there's a weight there, too. There's a weight to this drive. It wasn't easy like his heart is racing like you know this is not something he does every day even though steve mcqueen probably does a lot of racing every day at this time to get ready for this you know steve mcqueen to his credit you know he didn't do all the driving but he did do a ton of driving and that's why he has the window open and his head almost sticking out of the window at all points because he wanted to show you i am doing this driving like it is It is cool and it's interesting to think about this, especially as we, you know, I just look at Fast and Furious where they replace faces or it's done, you know, on a green screen. Like there is something really interesting to see, you know, the the guy with the shotgun hanging out the window firing. Like I I recoiled when that shot went, you know, and and that's like one shot from a shotgun. We're normally used to seeing car chases where guns are going off. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. Yeah, it the more bullets don't get you anything, right? The more bullets don't make it that much more exciting. It really is, yeah. And I mean, part of this too, like one of the other drivers was this guy, Carrie Lofton, who, you know, would go on to do French Connection. And he did like Smokey and the Bandit. He also he also like drove the truck as the bad guy in Duel. And, you know, Herbie goes to Monte Carlo. Gotta shout, like Herbie goes to Monte Carlo. But like, at the time, I think that Steve McQueen kind of felt like, should I say that I did all my own driving to the reporters to help sell this movie? I am paying for this movie. I want to make sure that everybody like goes to see this movie. Probably a little bit like how Tom Cruise is like, I do all of my stunts. Except I think Tom Cruise probably does do all of his stunts, although maybe decades later, the way we'll know more about it, um, the way that we know about Bullet now. But basically, like Steve McQueen came up to Carrie Lofton and he was like, can I tell the reporters I did all my own driving? And Lofton says, quote, as long as your check's clear, it doesn't make a bit of difference to me. But I think Steve McQueen felt a little bit bad about that and then would kind of go, go on and give more credit to, to his other drivers. You know, and if you want to know when Steve McQueen was driving or not driving, it's very simple. Uh, when he drives, Steve McQueen, the rearview mirror is down reflecting his face. And when Eakins is driving, it's up. So his face is hidden. So that's one little way you can see it. And before we just move away from the chase, I just want to point out one other thing that I think is really interesting and why it makes this sequence still to this day incredibly exciting. The lack of music. So, you know, this movie does have a great score. Lalo Schifrin does an amazing job. I love the opening. I love the music throughout. But when this car chase starts 
there's a distinct moment where he gets in the car and buckles his seatbelt and the music stops. Take a listen. And I love that Lalo Schifrin was like, I don't want to score this because the soundtrack, the actual noises are powerful enough. It's it. We don't need to blow it up. And I think what we're realizing here, and as we keep on talking about this movie, it's, it is a movie about restraint. Everything is pulled back. There's no screaming. There's no ultra violence. There's not a million gunshots. There's not a ton of music. It is continued restraint throughout this entire process. So much so that the last scene of the movie is, you know, Steve McQueen doing the the biggest trope of all movies, just putting some cold water on his face, you know, and that to me for the end of a, of a film about a cop who really got his man is interesting because it doesn't feel triumphant. It just feels like, like you said earlier, another day is done and it doesn't feel more heroic than anybody else doing their job. And I think that that's maybe at the end of the day, what is so perfect about this movie. I think you're exactly right. I think you're exactly right. And, you know, I want to actually even give out another shout out to sort of Lalo Schifrin and the score and the sound of all of this movie as we're talking about it. And by the way, this is like two years after Lalo does the famous soundtrack of Mission Impossible. So you can hear that kind of working with this idea of like jazz and tension off kilter rhythms. He uses so much restraint in, I think, just this whole score across the board. Like, I think I love the racing sequence. The racing sequence deserves to be the standout sequence from here. But I kind of wanted to pull out how Lalo and the sound team build one of the sequences I really love, which is earlier on in the hospital, where Steve McQueen is aware that maybe the killers might show up to try to kill Ross again. And then there's this giant chase through like the bowels of the hospital. I just want to play three quick clips of how effective this movie is when it comes to using sound. Okay, so first, Steve McQueen goes into the bowels of this hospital to find the man, and we hear these sounds that kind of sound like the settling of a large building with lots of pipes, but these clinks start to slowly turn into jazz. That evolution is so neat and so seamless where we think we're listening to one thing, then it becomes another one. And then you hear in the music just this moment where suddenly after all of this creeping and quiet, this tipping around, you know, minutes and minutes and minutes of just like tension, the chase is on. They see each other and boom, here we go. I love that shift. But even more than that, then I love how like the design just reverts to pure simplicity at the end of it and the way this whole chase sequence ends, which is told pretty much completely through sound.
I mean, let's just think about that. You hear the breaking glass, you get the psych out of the laundry falling down and like scaring everybody. You get the sound of chasing. And then finally, like it ends with this idea of hearing the birds outside, realizing that daylight has begun and that the man got away. I mean, that is just beautifully told, like not a single dumb quip, all just, I don't know, beauty, realism, tension. To me, this is just absolute craft. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I love the way that this score keeps attention. And it, like, this is a movie where, like I said early on, there's not that much dialogue. So the music is carrying us and, and emotionally carrying us from scene to scene. And I think he does such a great job at giving this pace, just giving this constant pace to the film. And it makes you feel like things are happening even though we don't exactly know what they are. And, you know, there is potentially a sequel in the pipeline. I have heard of this. What have you heard? Well, I heard that not Steve McQueen, but Steven Spielberg is tackling a, not remake, but a continuation of this character with Bradley Cooper set to star. So... We'll see. You know, the way the deadline reports it, it says that Steven Spielberg is developing a new movie based on the classic Steve McQueen character, Frank Bullitt. But to me, Bullitt is Steve McQueen. Like it's, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know if, and this is how I feel about a lot of leading men. Um, they, We are buying a ticket to see the persona. Like, yes, there are three equalizers, uh, the Denzel Washington film. But I think for the most part, people are just buying a ticket because they like Denzel Washington action movies, right? I don't know if people are like, I love the character of The Equalizer. I think that you go see a movie and it and you are buying a ticket for a personality. And I feel like Bullet is is a person. I, I wouldn't know what a care. I don't know what Bullet is. Like I don't I know who Bullet is outside. He's yes, a vibe. That's all. Like you just have to get the. Vibe, which is not a character. This is a guy that, again, we watch him parallel park and steal a newspaper and buy TV dinners. It's a vibe. It's not like, it's not like you're listing things that make bullet bullet. Because even when he, we see him like on his own talking to his friends, talking to Jacqueline Bissett, who, by the way, he cast because he thought she was very hot. Of course, he did all of the casting in here. And like his wife shows up to the set of Bullet and realizes he's having an affair with Jacqueline Bissett. And on his birthday and like throws a hairbrush at her husband and just says, happy birthday, hassle and leaves. Um, also part of the full story of the making of this movie. But like, but yeah, I mean, to me, the character is just, do you want to watch Steve McQueen walk around and do things? And if you say yes, that's what this is, because I think with anybody else in this role, you could argue that Bullet might just feel really slow. Like, who else do you want to watch Parallel Park forever? Right. Who else do you want to yeah. watch Grocery Shop forever? And also, if you want to cast somebody who looks like Steve McQueen, I would say who I always say, which is Michael Shannon. It's an interesting thing to kind of figure out why this movie is beloved. Is this movie beloved because it has a 10 minute long car chase? Is this movie beloved because it's Steve McQueen at his like most quintessential Steve McQueen-ist? Or is it just a great movie that is timeless? And I think the first two are more true than the latter. I think you're right. And I think I would argue that in a way we've had a bunch of spiritual sequels to Bullet because 
the performance that McQueen himself was kind of leaning on, the character he was leaning on when he made Frank Bullitt, was this real San Francisco police inspector. His yes. name was like Dave Toskey. And Dave Toskey has been so foundational for so many other movies. I mean, Toskey, you know, he is most famous probably to us because after Bullet came out, he wound up being the guy who got involved in like the Zodiac case. You know, yes. so he's the guy that Mark Ruffalo is playing in the movie Zodiac. And you even hear like a tiny little reference to that, like right here. In my life. Hey, Bullet. Been a year and a half. You're going to catch this fucking guy or not? Go fuck yourself. Happily. You should have called me, Paul. But you know what that is, because one of the uh, the ways that we can see this is Steve McQueen based his character on him. And one of the ways he shows that is the holster. The holster that he holds is the same holster as that detective, the same exact one. The detective that solved the Zodiac case uh, had like a bow tie, a little bit different. But even, you know, Clint Eastwood based his character of Dirty Harry on him. Uh, you know, th- this this was like a San Francisco police officer that people, you know, were like, oh, that's that's who I'm going to be. By the way, my wife played Toski's wife in uh, Zodiac. You know, so uh, I have a lot of connections to this character. (laughs) Yeah, you're just one degree away from Toski, which I think everybody kind of is. And what's weird, though, is like it's hard to think of two films that are more opposite than like Bullet and Dirty Harry, even if they're being supposedly based on the same character. Because Bullet, to me, is all about, you know, respect for life. And to me, Dirty Harry is completely about not caring about almost anybody's life. You know, there's almost no respect for life in that movie. And I, I heard that, like, I think Toski himself walked out of Dirty Harry and he just thought it was like, A, completely got him wrong and B, was almost offensive because he well, was that's known in his department of, like, caring about victims. Oh, is that's right. Yeah. Which my, uh, my, my mother-in-law and my father-in-law are in that scene as well. Well, should we do Zodiac sometime? I or mean, would that be too uh, weird for you? No, I mean, I love Zodiac. It's it's a great movie and a movie that people talk about a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so would you say these count as like unofficial spiritual sequels or nah? Well, no, I think that, look, there is a famous detective that, you know, we have two movies that are taking place in San Francisco that are using him as a model. Uh, I think that you saw that the gun holster is obviously that not Dirty Harry did not carry the same uh, gun holster as uh, Toski. And then Zodiac is a movie based on his life. I would argue more that, you know, Bullet, you probably may have even said, why are you saying that in the same sentence? Bullet is like a sequel to Stallone movies like Cobra. And before you like laugh at that, I would say that there's some truth to that because it's like a lone cop who's trying to do his job. And, you know, and like that kind of energy, that is to me the spiritual sequels of Bullet. I don't think it's exactly that. You know, I don't think it's the same movie, but that that kind of idea of like one man out to solve it. Okay, I'll be going to tell you something and don't get mad at me. Yeah. I've never seen Cobra. Oh, it's hilarious. I mean, it's, um, you don't, <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely, I would never get mad at you. Uh, it's just a Stallone action movie. It's a, it's hilarious and dumb. Um, but Cobra drives a Cobra, a 1950 Cobra, uh, you know, and he is, his name is Cobretti and is actually, I mean, I know a lot about Cobra. Cobra was originally <laughs> 
a Beverly Hills cop. It was like Axel Cobretti. And then when they, he fell out of Beverly Hills cop, he wanted to keep the name. So he kept Cobra and that became Axel Foley. Uh, interesting, like weird stuff there. But I feel like a lot of these lone cop films are that, you know, this idea of like, I want to do my bullet. Um, cool car, solve the case, go up against the man and, uh, and take care of business. I mean, it seems like one of those moments that we were talking about with Pulp Fiction, where people seize onto something that they really admire, but don't quite get why it works. Fair? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's also like, what works is I want to be cool. Like, <laughs> like I mean, that's what it is. It's like, Steve McQueen is the coolest. He's the fucking badass. I want to make a movie where I get to be Cobra. Like, and that, like, it does, it's not like I want to make Cobra. It's like, I want to create, I want to make that same dish. Cool car, cool look, you know, who bucks authority and saves the day. Like that, that to me is what Bullet is, is, I don't think that that was Steve McQueen's intent, but that's what it's been boiled down to. I mean, it is interesting seeing the way that like Steve McQueen is just perennially resurrected. I mean, he has to be resurrected because, you know, like we briefly mentioned, like he died when he was 50 of a type of cancer that was connected to asbestos poisoning. And one of the theories is that when he was like a young race car driver in his 20s, when he was, you know, studying Meisner acting, but also funding his life by race car driving on the weekends and motorcycle riding on the weekends, the flame retardant safety suits he had to wear were kind of soaked in a liquid that had asbestos in it. Mm. And so part of the theory is like, that's why he wound up dying really young, which is terrible. But you keep seeing people resurrected in these little ways. I mean, obviously, this. For me. No, 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 stay focused. Speed. I'm faster than fast, quicker than quick. I am lightning. Hey, lightning, you ready? Oh, yeah. Lightning's ready. I guess that's almost like the version of kids these days looking at an old Archie comic book and being like, McQueen, McQueen, I'm supposed to know that name. But then, you know, even car commercials have been like bringing back CGI McQueens and also like ripping off Field of Dreams at the same time. Like here, the audio you're going to hear is from a car commercial where a guy is like blazing a race car track into a cornfield in order to summon the ghost of Steve McQueen. I mean, in a way, part of me thinks that we keep bringing this guy back because who do we have exactly like him today? I don't know if there's a Steve McQueen, but I believe there are Steve McQueen-like actors out there. They may not have the longevity, but we talked about it earlier. Denzel Washington is, to me, like Steve McQueen. I could see that. You know, he doesn't say much. He's great in what he does. He carries himself with a weight. Like he, um, I think he also is a brilliant actor, but I think in certain movies, uh, you know, you just want to see him be the fucking coolest. And that, I think that there is something about, you know, when I, when I think, and I think that Stallone at a certain point falls into that. And I, I, I would argue that it's harder to say like someone like Stallone and Schwarzenegger fall into that because, 
Stallone and Schwarzenegger are built, their bodies are built in this way that's like, oh man, you know, I could never be like them. Now, Denzel Washington also built great, but he's not a bodybuilder, right? And Steve McQueen, not a bodybuilder. You know, and I think you could make an argument, oh, well, maybe like, oh, somebody like Chris Pratt or, you know, but I'd, ar- I'd argue maybe it's more like Paul Rudd. You know, Paul Rudd's a little bit more uh, comedically sound. Like, you know what, but there is there like this person that we like that's cool, that whatever they do is good, you know, we, we're not like questioning, like Steve McQueen's not getting into fist fights here. You know, he like, he's just carrying himself with an effortless cool. It's a, it's a good question. Who is the new cool, cool actor? Yeah, the way, the things that you're pinpointing to me make me feel like we've gotten cool all wrong. You know, yeah, cool is not, I can knock you out with one punch. Cool is not, I'm so swole, bro. I spend a lot of time at the gym. You know, cool is... I just keep talking about it. Cool is watching this dude buy TV dinners and being like, I just want to hang out with him. I mean, Clint Eastwood is cool, right? Like, you know, I think that there's something about his character was cool. I think that... uh, I mean, he was cool up until he had to start writing in things like, girls just keep wanting to have threesomes with me at 85. And I can't (laughs) help it. I'm just so cool. Like, as soon as you try hard, you're not cool, man. Uh, maybe maybe we have uh, maybe we benefited from the fact that uh, Steve McQueen died early, so we didn't get those <laughs> those kind of turns. But Harrison Ford is cool, right? Harrison Ford carried that level of cool, maybe with a little bit more heart. Sean Connery had that level of cool. Cool is obviously James Dean is cool. Um, is Matthew McConaughey cool? I think Matthew McConaughey is cool. I think Keanu Reeves is cool. You know, like there are but these people, people decided are, that Matthew McConaughey wasn't cool as soon as he started to enjoy being cool. We're very right. fickle. We're so right. fickle. But I think that Keanu stays cool. I think that Tom Hardy stays cool. Right. I think that those are people who have an energy about them. Idris Elba stays cool. Would you say that Tom Cruise is cool? No, Me but neither. I don't think that that's a I don't think that that's a dig on him. No, but in I think, fact, it's the fact that he's not cool that is sort of what I like. It's his try hardness that I admire. Yeah. Um, so I think that there is something about that that's interesting. I think that Ryan Gosling is cool. Yeah, I do think Ryan Gosling is cool. And if you told me that Ryan Gosling was going to remake Bullet, I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. Wait, yeah, um, okay, yeah. Wait, you're selling me on this. Hold on, keep going. Yeah, because I think that there's something about that, that there's an energy to these guys. And maybe it goes back to what you were saying in the beginning. They don't care if they ever do it again. But you know... If you are going to ask me, say, Ryan Gosling, which Ryan Gosling is more cool? I think Ryan Gosling of The Notebook is more cool than Ryan Gosling of The Driver. Because the Ryan Gosling of The Notebook has a whole range of personalities, is is okay being vulnerable and funny and weird. And I think the Ryan Gosling of The Driver is trying to be Steve McQueen, but he's being too cool and it's too slick. And I don't, and I think it, Turns into the tryhard that I don't admire about it. I think it turns into too self-conscious. It's self-conscious. That's it. Okay. It's self-conscious. You know, I would argue that the Ryan Gosling character in Drive is a, a little bit of a character who is not mentally sound, right? Uh, the Notebook, there are, he's a more full-fledged character. I like the performance in Drive. It's not as put together as Bullet. Like, Bullet's a fully fleshed out person. The character in Drive is is not, and purposely so. You know, so that that's all I would say about that. Like, I agree with what you're saying, but that makes me go like, oh, he's so versatile that he can play 
a multifaceted character. He could play a bumbling version of that character. He could play, you know, this character they just did in in Barbie. Like he in Barbie, he he can kind of do it all, but he carries himself in a way where he's also okay to make fun of himself. And maybe that's part of it too. I don't know. You know, like I think for the longest time, cool guys would never want to like lose the cool, like never want to give you like a little, you know, let them, let you see them not be cool. Well, yeah. And that's a thin line because I would not say that Bullet ever makes fun of himself, but I would say that Steve McQueen plays Bullet in a way where you feel like you're seeing a real man in moments where he doesn't necessarily look cool where he's hungry at a hospital, where he's buying TV dinners, where he's eating a sandwich, where he's sleeping Anyone in the morning, drinking where milk. Yeah. Anyone drinking milk and having a serious conversation. Yeah. They can't be that cool. He's waking up in the morning and putting on a kimono. You know, like, he's not oh. always trying to look cool. He's just trying to look like he occupies his own body comfortably. And that's cool. Well, I love that. So, Amy, I think if we're to underline all of this, what you're saying is, to be cool, you have to comfortably wear a kimono. Honestly, I think if you comfortably wear a kimono, yes, you are cool. Wow. All right. There it is. You've heard it here first. We always are dropping bombs, and this is one of them. If you can comfortably wear a kimono, you are cool. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Wait, that makes me think we should do a, a kimono challenge. Send us cool pictures of you in a kimono, and we'll say, yes, you are cool. I love it. Yeah. Post it on our Discord. Um, Well, it's interesting because we've just talked about what makes cool cool. And I think whenever you have too much cool, you try to figure out a way to subvert that. How do you be something that's a little different? Maybe cool isn't cool. Maybe being a little bit out of place is cool. And that's where our next movie comes in. We will look at the John Avildsen classic, The Karate Kid a movie I've seen so many times, a movie that made such an impression on me when I was a kid because it showed you you could be cool four years after Steve McQueen passes away. uh, This movie comes out. And I don't know. There's something really interesting about this movie. We've talked about Rocky on this show, but this is kind of like Rocky for kids. But it also, I think, has a, a, a very big staying power, just like Rocky. So here, take a listen to the trailer. Telling me. Did I tell you about the pool here? For Daniel LaRusso. Is this the only pool you guys got? The future seemed far from terrific. This place is a dump. You should go back to New Jersey. Hey, I know it's hard, but we're not quitters, are we? Until in one man, he found a teacher. I promise teach karate. And a friend. Fighting all his best answer. How did you do that? Don't know. First time, power, whole body. Yeah. Make a perfect picture. How do I know if my picture's the right one? If come from inside of you, always right on. Lesson about the balance, not just karate. Lesson for all life. Why train? So I won't have to fight. All right, so we are going to Karate Kid. Amy, did this movie affect you in a major way uh, when you were... Uh... A kid? I mean, I grew up knowing that this was just a massive touchstone. And now I'm realizing, oh, we're really going to put the kimonos make you cool thing to the test. <laughs> <laughs> we are. Indeed, we are. Well, guess what? 
I say that Pat Morita is one of the coolest actors ever. Uh, and he definitely wears kimono in this. Uh, so next week, we will be talking about Karate Kid. You can get this wherever you stream your films. You can also go to Canopy, which is a library, a digital media streaming service uh, to check out what else they have there. It's great. Uh, and you can bypass all the streamers and get your thing for free right via an app on your cell phone or iPad or however you digest your films. All right, Amy, uh, what a blast talking about Bullet. Uh, before we go, a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapelo, and our MVP, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy, and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, see the official API list of Unspooled films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.